No charges for police officer after dog bites man's ear off. Review into police conduct in Prince Albert is finished, though only the recommendations are being reported publicly. New report shows that Toronto and Vancouver's minimum wages need to be $40 an hour for people to be able to afford an apartment. The Regina Manifesto turns 90 and Kenya decries Russia for its decision to leave the Black Sea Grain export deal. Good morning. It's Wednesday, July 19th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. This morning, we start in London, Ontario, where Ontario's SIU has decided not to charge a police officer after his dog bit a man's ear off while the cop was arresting him. In November 2022, police say they were called about a man who was breaking into his ex-girlfriend's place at 8 o'clock in the morning. The man left in his girlfriend's car before police arrived, but they eventually found him. He ran away from police and they sicked their dog on him. The police dog bit the man on his ass, legs, arms, and also bit off his ear. He sustained serious injuries, obviously, and was taken to the hospital. During the course of the SIU investigation, the main officer refused to hand over his notes or speak to the police investigation's body. The SIU reminds people this is totally within his right to do. The SIU found that the force that was used in this situation was proportional to the situation. It was necessary because the man did not abide by a curfew, there had been warrants out for his arrest, and he had used a stolen vehicle. One wonders if the police officer himself had torn the man's ear off with his own teeth if the outcome of this investigation would have been different. Why do we use dogs like this again? Anyway, as I've taken the details directly from the SIU report, sorry to the now Toronto news hit that I saw, but you folks left way too much information out about the death for me to set your story. I don't have anything more to say about the individual who experienced these horrible injuries, though I hope he's getting the psychological help that he'll probably need after such a vicious attack. Next, an update to a story you might remember from the Prince Albert Police in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Recall that an investigation into the operation of the PAPS had been called a couple of months ago. It happened after a baby had died thanks to police negligence. Well, the report is finished and it will not be released. The 45 recommendations are being released, but not the report itself. For example, recommendation 13 suggests that the police force develop risk management and risk mitigation processes as currently, quote, the PAPS does not have any risk management or risk mitigation processes, unquote. That seems weird for a police force. Just two days ago, a police officer with a PAPS was charged with criminal negligence causing death and failing to provide the necessaries of life for the death of Saul Laliberti while he was in the custody of PAPS. Nigel Maxwell with PA Now reports that the police officer facing these charges worked for 21 years for the police force. And... Unrelated to the PAPS, though, within the same area, about four hours drive northeast from PA in Pelican Narrows, the RCMP are being investigated for the death of a man who was in their custody on Sunday afternoon. Indeed, it does not seem like police in Saskatchewan have enough oversight, and as a result, too many people are dying in their custody. 
Next, to a report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, which has found that the minimum wage would need to surpass $40 per hour for Toronto and Vancouver for people to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment and still pay for food and utilities. In Vancouver, the minimum wage would have to be $42.60 for people to be able to pay for the necessaries of life. Remember the other day when I mentioned that piece of propaganda from the CBC about the 30% rule? Well, the CCPA has found that nearly all people making minimum wage and working 40 hours per week have surpassed spending 30% of their income on housing. The most expensive top five cities were Vancouver, Toronto, Kelowna, Victoria, and Ottawa. For people looking for a one-bedroom apartment, the minimum wage would need to be $33.60 per hour. The report found that of the 37 cities that they studied, the only places where two-bedroom apartments were affordable on minimum wage were in Quebec. The Toronto Star article by Clary Feinstein quotes co-author David McDonald, who said that the data is not current enough to include the latter part of 2022 or any of 2023. And so these costs all actually are higher. For some reason, the Toronto Star didn't mention the top five least expensive places to live, which were, from most expensive to least expensive, Montreal, Quebec, Sherbrooke, Trois-Rivières, and Saguenay. And people always wonder if I love living in Quebec. The answer is I do, folks. I really, really do. Next, today is a really important anniversary for Canada's left. It is the 90th anniversary of the Regina Manifesto. The Regina Manifesto was the founding manifesto of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, what was once a socialist party and then deflated like the slowest, longest and most sounding balloon ever into what is today's NDP. 90 years ago, more than 130 delegates came to Regina for the first national convention of the CCF. An article in Spring Magazine by Scott Coston summarizes the manifesto like this. Quote, the manifesto described the economic system of the early 1930s as the cancer which is eating at the heart of our society. It called for the eradication of capitalism and the implementation of a full program of socialized planning. The CCF wanted to nationalize the country's financial system and bring under public ownership, transportation, communications, electric power, and all other industries and services essential to social planning. The manifesto also demanded a national labor code and a properly organized system of public health services, including medical and dental care, which would stress the prevention rather than the cure of illness to be extended to all our people in both rural and urban areas, unquote. You should read the Regina Manifesto. It is unthinkably radical through today's eyes, and the article doesn't exactly get that point across. Though, perhaps, how could it? You should read it for yourself. Costin quotes MP Matthew Green, who says, quote, It is a beautifully written document that is as pertinent today in this kind of cartel capitalism that has evolved in Canada and the material conditions of working class people as it was in the 1930s. It also quotes Suzanne McNeil, a former Labour Council president, who says that the manifesto is notable because it was a major force in Canadian politics that was, quote, profoundly anti-capitalist, unquote. The CCF scared the hell out of the establishment in this country. They swept into power in Saskatchewan in 1944 and became the official opposition in Ontario a year before that. The article notes something that is impossible to miss if you study this period of time at all, which is that the ideas of the CCF were constantly stolen by other parties and helped form the basis of Canada's social safety net in the post-war period. Also, I have to mention, this is what my next book is about in 2024. 
If you are a left-wing person in Canada or even in the U.S., you must read the manifesto. For me, it is the synthesis of everything that they saw as being wrong with Canada. And reading today, it isn't just a clear call for anti-capitalism, but much more important, it shows just how far to the right Canada's left-wing political establishment has gotten. The impactive force of the CCF was that their ideas were popular. They were so popular that they were stolen, watered down, and so on. But they saw the light of day from healthcare to modern unemployment insurance and family allowances. The force of the CCF and their ideas was not chasing elections, but was influencing the political establishment in such a way that even conservatives could support socialist-inspired ideas. Today, we have no shortage of ideas. We have no shortage of manifestos and calls for change, but we have absolutely no roadmap for how to fix these problems. And contrary to Green's optimism, I don't think that anything about the current trajectory of the NDP demonstrates that this is a party that could ever take on radical politics in a serious way. Celebrate this important anniversary by reading the manifesto, which annoyingly Spring doesn't link to, I don't think. And thinking about how to steal their ideas again, this is what we should be doing, just like the grubby little fingers of Paul Martin Sr., who insisted that healthcare had nothing to do with socialism when he looked back on how it came to be in Canada. Yes, steal their ideas, but also maybe we should be stealing their tactics as well. And finally, to Kenya, where reaction to Russia's decision to stop allowing Ukraine to export grain through the Black Sea is, quote, a stab in the back at global food security prices and disproportionately impacts countries in the Horn of Africa already impacted by drought, unquote. That quote is coming from Kenyan officials. Kenya is experiencing severe drought and needs to import grains as a result. Russia's blockade in 2022 threatened food in parts of Africa. A deal brokered by Turkey and the UN allowed for Ukrainian grain to hit the world's market, reports the BBC. Drought has pushed 50 million people to rely on food aid in Somalia, Kenya, Ethiopia, and South Sudan. Ukraine has shipped 625,000 tons of food as humanitarian aid to Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen. Russia has said that it's pulled out of the deal because not enough grain has been shipped to poorer countries. Russia has said that sanctions placed on them have stopped their own ability to ship grains and fertilizers, and foods have been stopped from being shipped as well. Russia made the announcement that they are considering pulling out of the agreement in the wake of the NATO meeting, where Russia accused NATO of being too close to Ukraine and its bid to join the military alliance. Plus, a bridge attack likely carried out by Ukraine in Crimea that killed two civilians had just happened. A Russian spokesperson said that the bridge attack was unrelated to their decision. Turkey's President Erdogan is planning to meet with Putin soon, and he said he will try to convince the country to not pull out of the agreement. Those are your headlines for Wednesday, July 19th. I'm Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandynora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and syndicated on campus radio stations across Canada. I hope you have a great Wednesday. I hope you're staying cool and not getting too anxious about uh, the destruction of the planet. And I'll see you tomorrow.